1972, I was a new part-time faculty member at the Columbia University School of Library Service of Blessed Memory. And as the youngest and most insignificant member of the faculty, I was given the job as chair of the assembly committee. The assembly committee was a lectures committee. You had to find people willing to come to Columbia and lecture at 11 o'clock in the morning <laughs> on subjects of virtue and utility to students in the School of Library Service. Well, it was a classic case in the gradual pressure and perversion because the lecture series moved first to four o'clock and then to six o'clock and alcohol was substituted for tea <laughs> and lectures on the history of the book were substituted for lectures on service to the blind at the Library of Congress and probably things which have traditionally been on the lecture series. And here we are, 500 lectures later, by way of 1972 to 1992 at Columbia, 1993 to 2007 at the University of Virginia. If I remember, correct, if I remember correctly, lecture number 300, which Felix de Marais Oyens gave, was in 1981. Lecture number 400, which Roger Stoddard gave, was in 1997. Lecture number 500, which James Green, librarian of the Library Company of Philadelphia, is about to give, is tonight. James Green. Thank you, Terry. I'm, I'm really delighted to um, be part of the celebration of this milestone, another milestone in a rare book school's history, in your history. And, um, you know, I hope we're all around for lecture 600, though at this rate. The pace seems to be slowing down, I'll have to say. Um, and I also wanted to say another thank you to Terry. Um, he, like, I think like many of us, he was the first person who showed me that the, um, the materiality of, of texts was something worthy of study. And this is something that I had not learned, decidedly not learned, in several fruitless years of graduate study at Yale University. And so um, this, has been, this was a discovery that has kept me um, most of the time fascinated and all the time gainfully employed for now over 30 years. So I have a lot to thank you for there, too. All sorts of printing at reasonable rates. I take my title from an advertisement for himself that Franklin published in the very first issue of his Pennsylvania Gazette on October 2nd, 1729. Here it is. It mentions a book or two at first, but most of it consists of a long list of legal forms he supplied to the public. I'll read you that list. I actually love the way it sounds. Bills of lading bound and unbound. Common blank bonds for money bonds with judgment, counter bonds, arbitration bonds, arbitration bonds with umperage, bail bonds, counter bonds to save bail harmless, <laughs> bills of sale, powers of attorney, 
writs, summons, apprentices' indentures, servants' indentures, penal bills, promissory notes, etc., all the blanks in the most authentic forms and correctly printed may be had the publishers of this paper who perform all other sorts of printing at reasonable rates. Can you all hear me in the back now? I want to make sure that that's good. The staggering variety of blank legal forms Franklin advertised, as well as the other sorts of printing he proclaimed himself available to do, are what he calls small jobs or little jobs. Printing historians call it job printing, which is usually defined as printed matter consisting of a single sheet of paper, usually cut up into smaller pieces. Actual printers seldom use the term anymore, but it continues to be a way they make a living. For example, this modern-day Philadelphia printer in his Yellow Pages ad promises to meet all your printing needs, including business forms and cards, invitations, raffle tickets, brochures, labels, flyers, programs, and tickets. This is job printing. The term job printing came into use in the 19th century. Here's a typical Victorian job printer's ad. There are a million of them, but it has all the essential elements that you can see. It has bill heads, checks, circulars, bills of lading, and various other patriotic symbols. Nowadays, collectors call this sort of thing printed ephemera. The terminology changes, but its material form has stayed much the same for centuries. Small jobs were very important to Franklin, and they were particularly welcome to him as a source of ready money, cash on the barrel head. And he often put other work, even when it was pressing, aside to accommodate them. His first big job, that is, opposed to small jobs, his first book job, in fact, was printing part of the large folio history of the Quakers um, for the Philadelphia Friends in his autobiography describing how hard he worked on this important commission. He mentioned that it was often 11 at night and sometimes later before I had finished my distribution of type for the next day's work, for the little jobs sent in by our other friends now and then put us back. In fact, the very first thing Franklin printed when he set up business in 1728 was some kind of broadside advertisement. And I'll read again from his autobiography. We had scarce opened our letters and put our press in order before George House, an acquaintance of mine, brought a countryman to us whom he had met in the street inquiring for a printer. All our cash was now expended in, this variety of in the variety of particulars we had been obliged to procure, and this countryman's five shillings being our first fruits, and coming so seasonably gave me more pleasure than any I have since earned. Blank forms like this were a cheap and easy alternative to having legal documents drawn up by a scrivener, or, God forbid, an attorney. A scrivener's job was to copy legal documents by hand with pen and ink, usually in multiple copies, that had to be identical to one another and follow precisely the prescribed language. The tiniest variation, even the omission of a comma, could lead to disputes, and so people paid good money to scriveners to do this writing correctly. Over a century later, Melville's scrivener Bartleby was so depressed, not only because his work was boring and repetitive, but also because blank forms and other copying technologies were making him obsolete. But in early America, scrivening was an important trade. An example of Odette Bond written entirely by hand. I'm afraid I skipped a passage. At the end of this quote from the autobiography, gave me more pleasure than any I've since earned. Let me resume, sorry. Franklin's predecessors in the, print, in the Philadelphia printing 
business also did job printing from time to time. For example, here's a blank business form from the library company's Rittenhouse Paper Mill Archive, which was printed in 1703 by Renier Jensen. It's a debt bond, the sort Franklin called in his Gazette ad, common blank bonds for money. It bound a borrower to repay a loan or else become liable for twice the sum borrowed, a situation known as double indemnity. Blank forms like this were a cheap and easy alternative to having legal documents drawn up by a scrivener. In early America, scrivening was an important trade. Here's an example of a debt bond written entirely by hand, but also, also from the Rittenhouse Papers, dated 1697. As you can see, the text is continuous, or almost continuous. The date was added in a different ink when the document was signed, and there's even a little blank space around it. were supposed to copy all their letters in a big round hand. <laughs> in any case, forms like this were an ideal application for print because most of the wording was standard. When you bought a blank form from a printer, you got the right legalese in a clearly legible form for mere pennies. So why did the Rittenhouses, why did the Rittenhouses use a printed form in 1703 but not in 1697? Perhaps simply because in 1697 there was no printer in Philadelphia. William Bradford had been driven to New York by the friends, and Rainier Jensen had not yet taken his place. But that answer is too pat. The fact is that before Franklin's time, printed forms like this are extremely rare in America. Virtually all the legal forms that survive in the tens of thousands in early American archives are written entirely by hand. And almost all the printed forms that do survive were printed for government use, not for private transactions. And since most American printers were first and foremost government printers, Printing those forms was just part of their salaried job. Franklin certainly didn't invent blank forms, nor was he the first American to print them, but he seems to have been the first to make them a specialty and a consumer product. As he wrote in his autobiography, I now opened a little stationer's shop. I had in it blanks of all sorts, the correctest that ever appeared among us, being assisted in that by my friend Joseph Brightman. Joseph Brightman was one of Franklin's Junto friends, perhaps his best friend at that time, and he was a Scrivener, so he knew what the correct forms were. It's not a terrifically great slide, but here's an example of this scrivening on the library company's 1731 Articles of Association, showing Brightman's neat, regular hand next to the scrawl signatures of the library's founders, prized very much by Benjamin Franklin. Correctness meant both that the wording and punctuation were right, and that it was the right kind of form for the specific application. Every printed word on the form counted. Superfluous words were just as bad as wrong words. Let's look again at the detail of that 1703 form printed by Rainier Jensen. Note how the words pounds of current money were printed, and then pounds of was crossed out. It was a problem, but um, the pounds was crossed off. Um, I think this was meant to indicate that the loan was to be paid back not just in any current money, but in silver money of Pennsylvania. But that's not clear to me. And if it was not clear in 1703, that was a problem. A more correct form might not have had the words pounds of at all. It was problems like this that Franklin and Brightnell tried to avoid as they composed their forms. Another common type of blank form is the indenture. 
An indenture was a contract between two parties made in duplicate and then cut apart with a wavy or serrated cut. A wavy or serrated cut that left complementary edges unique to those copies, useful for security and identification. It was from the indentations made in the process of cutting that indentures derived their name. The most common types of indentures were mortgages, leases, and articles of apprenticeship. And here, the tailoring of the language of the printed form was even more important. Anyone who's ever signed a lease or taken out a mortgage knows that the fine print always favors the landlord or the bank. And because it's printed, it's practically impossible to alter or amend it in your favor. Landlords and bankers are the ones who are buying the forms, and language favorable to their interests is one of the things they get for their money. And then, as well as now, the fact that the language is standard and hallowed by tradition is only reinforced by having it printed. For example, this is a, a detail of that apprenticeship indenture. Franklin's indenture is full of prohibitions, such as, at cards, dice, or other unlawful game he shall not play, nor haunt alehouses, taverns, or playhouses. Haunt? <laughs> playhouses? There were no playhouses in Philadelphia. Is this Franklin expressing his own well-known disapproval of intemperance? No. As it turns out, this exact phrase is found, all this phraseology is found exactly as he printed it in a standard book of legal forms published in Britain at just a few years before the Young Secretary's Guide. Franklin stuck with the conventional legal language, which for time out of mind had been preventing apprentices from harmlessly lightening the burden of their servitude. <laughs> Still another common type of blank form was the Bill of Lading, a certificate describing goods consigned to a ship. Franklin kept these forms constantly in print for decades, using the same distinctive type metal initial S but varying the type from time to time. As the ad, I, he, he published them in the tens of thousands, and so the type just probably just wore out. And as the ad I quoted at the outset states, bills of lading could be had bound and unbound. Now, unbound forms were separate sheets of paper with the text printed in pairs. One copy was retained by the shipper, and the other was sent along with the goods shipped. They were cut apart on the long side of the form. Bound bills of lading were printed six to a sheet, three on each half, folded to make two leaves of three forms each. The sheets were then folded and sewn through the folds into a leather-bound ledger. Again, the forms were filled out in duplicate, but now one copy would be filled in on the first leaf and the other on the second leaf. The copy that went with the goods was cut out and the retained form would stay in the book, which then became a permanent record of all the shipments sent out. Each kind of bill of lading had its own uses, its own specific application. The wording of bills of lading hardly varied for centuries, except in one phrase. Isaiah Thomas, in his 1810 History of Printing in America, wrote, Bills of lading formerly began with, shipped by the grace of God, etc. Shipped by the grace of God, etc. Some people of Philadelphia objected to this phraseology as making light of serious things. Franklin, therefore, printed some without these words and inserted inserted in his paper the following advertisement, bills of lading for sale at this office with or without the grace of God. <laughs> this story, perhaps just the teeniest bit apocryphal, I've never been able to find the ad, um, but certainly the bills of lading are like that. This story highlights perhaps the most striking fact about Franklin's forms. There are the many different types tailored for specific uses. Remember the list in the ad I quoted at the outset, common blank bonds for money, bonds with judgment, counter bonds, arbitration bonds, arbitration bonds with umperage, etc. 
Each of these varieties might mean adding or changing only a few words, changes that could easily have been made in manuscript. But it was just so much smarter to have that language set out clearly in type. Franklin tailored his forms to the customer's needs and tastes in other ways as well. For example, for most big landowners and public officials, he printed leases, licenses, warrants, certificates appropriate to their use with their names set in type. Here's an example, a 1744 survey warrant with the name of the surveyor general, William Parsons, set in type. Franklin's name doesn't appear on the form, but we know he printed it because his ledger is recorded by William Parsons, surveyor general, 200 warrants. His letters record many other such jobs where no copy of the printed product survives. For example, in 1729, Franklin noted in his ledgers for Wednesday, March 12th, Nicholas Skull, deputy sheriff, 200 bail bonds. And then right under that, 400 bail bonds with Sheriff Charles Reed's name, one pound, 13 shillings, four pence. In other words, both the sheriff and his deputy got their own personalized forms. I don't know if this made them more correct, but it certainly flattered the customer's vanity. Franklin's ledgers record, record countless other jobs for which not a single copy survives. Most intriguing are the thousands of labels he printed for such products as soap, tobacco, and patent medicines. Judging from much later 19th century survivals, labels like these might also have been blank forms of a sort with the net weight added in manuscript or the, or the authenticating signature, you know, the non-genuine without this signature. Or another example, his accounts record that for one Dr. Brewster he printed cures, these were probably instructions for composing your own medicine, but with a blank left where a key ingredient in the formula was supplied in manuscript at the moment of sale. Here's a Pennsylvania German cure for the bite of a mad dog uh, from about 1830. But this is the kind of thing I think that these, this ledger entry refers to. Um, you only got the secret ingredient when you paid for the broadside. And here the secret ingredient that was added at the last minute was um, I've been told by friends who read this kind of thing, raw chicken guts. <laughs> the single greatest concentration of blank forms printed by Franklin are in the archives of the library company. Here's a share certificate he printed for us in 1731. And some receipts given for payment of dues. You can see that, in, that the type is much the same, but that in 1740 he added the, the number four to make it up to date. He also printed book plates for us. Um, in fact, four different ones printed together on the same half sheet. They were blank forms because the book succession number, which was also its shelf location, was written on it by hand. Lottery tickets were another kind of blank form because they had to be numbered and signed in manuscript. In 1748, Franklin printed 30,000 tickets for this lottery to, to uh, raise money for the defense of Philadelphia. This is one of a handful that survived. Lottery tickets were, were typically printed in sheets and that were bound in books. Beside each ticket was a stub, which was also numbered by hand. When you bought a ticket, it would be signed by the person conducting the lottery and snipped out of the book, leaving the stub behind. Often the cut was indented, so the ticket could be matched if it was drawn a winner. Here's the, whoops, sorry. Here, this is a sheet of unsold tickets for a much later um, lottery with the stubs uh, still bound in the book with the stubs intact. Well, you're probably getting tired of blank forms by now, so let's take a momentary break. After blanks, the most common kind of job printing Franklin did was advertisements printed on single sheets of paper as broadsides or handbills. Advertisers had a choice between placing an ad in the Gazette or having a broadside printed separately, or they could do both. Here's one of the few surviving handbills, whoops, here's one of the few surviving handbills Franklin printed, 
And here's the same ad printed in the Gazette. An ad of moderate length in the Gazette cost five shillings, while ads of over 30 lines like this one cost seven shillings six pence. That's a lot of money considering that a year's subscription to the Gazette cost 10 shillings. And just for purposes of comparison, a journeyman printer earned about six shillings a day. An ad could be repeated in subsequent issues for only a shilling extra per week. But this reflects the fact that the type didn't need to be reset. Um, the printer could just tie that little block with twine after it was taken off the press and then slipped, he could slip it into uh, the next issue where space was available. And you find, find the same setting of type appearing in different places and from one issue to the next. For many printers, this repeated exposure was an important advantage of newspaper advertising. A hundred copies of a quarter sheet handbill like this one might cost the advertiser a bit less than the equivalent newspaper ad. But then the newspaper ad appeared in 1,500 copies or more and came with free automatic distribution over a wide geographical area. A half or full sheet ad cost much more than a newspaper ad, but its size and the size of its type captured more attention. Of course, the Gazette only appeared once a week, so advertisers with a time-sensitive message might have no choice to, but to have a separate ad printed and posted on walls or passed around, by a, passed around town by a crier. In general, job printing was expensive compared with other kinds of print. In 1754, Franklin wrote out his scale for printing prices and wages, so we know that normally a compositor was paid by how much text he set, but for small jobs he was paid by the hour, and for blanks at a flat rate by the size of the sheet, because the variety of types and the irregularity of the spacing made this kind of typesetting labor-intensive. Higher labor charges were passed on to the consumer with a healthy markup. A single four-page issue of the Gazette cost a subscriber about two pence, but Franklin charged the same price per copy for a half-sheet broadside ad pasted on one side, uh, printed on one side only. That is, for half the paper and a quarter of the press work. The biggest of all Franklin's little jobs was the paper money he printed for the colonies of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. Cash flow was a perennial problem not only for printers but for all tradesmen. And the problem was exacerbated by the shortage of cash that was endemic in the colonial economy. Franklin was a strong proponent of paper money, and his arguments in favor of increasing the paper money supply helped get him the job of printing it. Paper money was yet another kind of blank form because, as you can see, each piece of currency had to be numbered by hand and signed by one or more public officials. In Pennsylvania, paper money was issued by an agency called the Loan Office, which was in effect a land bank, issuing mortgages on real estate that were paid out in newly created paper money. When the loans were repaid, the currency was withdrawn, but while it circulated, it increased the money supply for all. And paper money had been in use in Pennsylvania since 1723, and it was believed by most farmers and tradesmen to account for the region's prosperity. But it was still a divisive political issue because big merchants and landowners, including the Penn family, either opposed it altogether or favored strict limits on how much was in circulation and for how long. Well, just as in 1729, just as the assembly was about to vote on whether to authorize a new paper money emission, Franklin wrote and printed an anonymous pamphlet and a modest inquiry into the nature and necessity of a paper currency, which advocated a moderate increase in the money supply using arguments borrowed from European economists but deftly adapted to the needs of Pennsylvania. In, the, in his autobiography, he wrote, it was well received by the common people in general, but the rich men disliked it for it increased and strengthened the clamor for more money. And they, happening to have no writers among them who were able to answer it, their opposition slackened, and the point was carried by a majority in the House. My friends there, that is in the assembly, 
who conceived I had been of some service uh, to them, thought fit to reward me by employing me in printing the money, a very profitable job and a great help to me. As it happens, Franklin's memory was faulty on this last point, but his mistake is understandable. His friends couldn't get him the job of printing the money because his great rival, Andrew Bradford, was still the government printer. But when his friends were trying to think of a suitable reward for his services, someone, and it could only have been Franklin himself, suggested employing him to print the blank forms associated with the currency emission. And previously, the loan office had kept its mortgage records in a blank ledger book. Each mortgage contract was copied out laboriously by hand. The 1729 emission was the first to use blank forms for the mortgages, and Franklin was the man who printed them. The 1729 mortgage book has only come to light in the last few years in the collection of Philadelphian J. Snyder. It consists of a bound volume containing 278 printed mortgage forms, each filled out in manuscript. Franklin's name appears nowhere in the book, but the type is unquestionably his. This previously unknown book of forms is Franklin's first piece of government printing. He also printed the bonds that each mortgagee signed, promising to repay the loan with an interest of 5%. And these, too, had previously been drawn up in manuscript. He didn't get the much bigger job of printing the money just yet, but this little job was indeed a turning point in his career, the first step in wresting both the paper money and the government printing jobs away from Andrew Bradford. Franklin got the job of printer to the assembly the next year in 1730 with the help of yet another piece of job printing. As he wrote in his autobiography, Bradford still printed the boats and laws and other public business. He had printed an address of the house to the governor in a coarse and blundering manner. We reprinted it elegantly and correctly and sent one to every member. They were sensible of the difference and it strengthened the hands of my friends in the house and they voted us their printers for the year ensuing. Well, on the left is the, is the address that Bradford printed so coarsely. I wish I could show you the one that Franklin uh, reprinted supposedly so elegantly, but it does not exist anymore. But on the right, I am uh, showing you one of the first broadsides he printed after after he was appointed printer of the assembly in the just after January 1st, 1730. So I ask you, were the assemblymen such typophiles that they were sensible of the difference? It's not really that striking. Um, I mean, I... I've looked at it and tried to figure out what, what they're talking about. There's some slippage in the type in the corner here. Overall, they, some of the letters don't ink too well. Um, but all in all, it's a pretty respectful piece of work. And, and Franklin's isn't so wonderful either. Um, and Bradford could produce all that work when he tried. Here's the last piece he printed for the assembly at the end of 1729, just before he lost his job, a, a tour de force that, that was, as Keith Arbor has shrewdly noted, probably an attempt to persuade the House to reconsider their decision to take the job away from them. I think this looks better than either of the others. Well, let you judge. It didn't work. But it does suggest that it, the, the House didn't reconsider their decision. But this does suggest that it was the influence of Franklin's friends in the assembly that got him the job, not his supposedly superior craftsmanship. Once Franklin had the assembly printing job, he got all the paper money jobs that came along every few years. And by the time he retired in 1748, he had printed an estimated 800,000 individual paper bills. His total income for this work approached 1,000 pounds. By comparison, over the same period of time, he received 782 pounds from the assembly for printing the votes and laws and serving as their clerk. 
Printing paper money, money had previously been a sideline to the position of public printer, but in Franklin's hands it became more profitable than the main job, and paper money was the tail that wagged the government printing dog. Counterfeiting was a constant problem with paper currency, especially if it was printed with ordinary type, which could easily be copied by any other printer. Some colonies used engraved copper plates to print money, and here's some engraved money. Um, in sort of the way we do today, with elaborate designs that were supposed to discourage counterfeiters. The fact that before the 1730s, there were only one or two people in America at any given time who knew how to engrave and print copper plates seemed to offer some additional security. For example, in 1728, before he set up his own printing office, Franklin worked for a while as a journeyman printing paper money for New Jersey. And in his autobiography, he says, I contrived a copper plate press for it, the first that had been seen in the country. None of those bills survive, unfortunately, but engraved bills were nevertheless far from proof against counterfeiting. They could easily be altered with a, to a higher value with a few strokes of the pen, and there are examples surviving where very cleverly the counterfeiter has, has uh, increased the value from 5 to 15 or something like that. And some enterprising counterfeiters even went to the trouble of having their own plates engraved in England. This plus the higher expense of engraving may account for the fact that after 1730, most colonies had their money printed with ordinary type and ornamented with relief cuts or type metal cuts. Relief cuts could be almost as elaborate as engraved designs. And in addition, some colonies included secret marks in the letterpress, upside down letters, odd accents, and the like. Can you find them? This is a red wall. The problem with this kind of counterfeit deterrent was any printer could copy these marks if he, if, he could, if he could find them, he couldn't fail to notice them. And in any case, the government couldn't tell the public what to look for without giving the secret away. <laughs> Another way to detect counterfeits was to indent each bill, which involved binding sheets of bills and books in a book with stuff, just like we saw with lottery tickets a minute ago. Um, here is a, a misprinted bill that happens to have its stub still attached. The problem with indented bills was that, if, if, that you didn't find out if they were counterfeit until they were redeemed. And also, by then, all the edges were likely to be worn or trimmed, so an exact match was not always possible, even with good bills. Well, so it was Franklin who invented the most effective counterfeit deterrent ever used in colonial America, his tight metal cuts of leaves. And some people think he used images of leaves because all leaves are different, like snowflakes, and therefore not reproducible. And that may be true, but I think it misses the point. The veins on the leaves were so fine and complex, and the serrations on, on, on them so irregular, that no ordinary relief cut could duplicate or even approximate them. The process he used was a dark secret, and it baffled many contemporaries. Cadwallader Colden, writing to the London printer, said, it has puzzled all the printers in the country to conceive by what method it was done, and it remains a bit mysterious to this day. Franklin probably got the idea of leaf cuts from the nature prints of leaves that he and his friend Joseph Brightnell made in the 1730s. This process was simple. They inked actual leaves, placed them between a folded sheet of paper, and passed it through the press. And you can see that this, that there are, um, to a certain extent, mirror images here of the leaves uh, as they were printed. Brightnell sent these prints to botanists in London who were eager for data on American plants. Brightnell and Franklin probably got the idea from an old German encyclopedia that they saw in the library of their patron, James Logan. Logan had bought this book from Francis Daniel Pastorius, the founder of Germantown, Pennsylvania, who had made the nature prints in the 1690s. He probably didn't use a press, he just closed the book and pressed hard. 
The manuscript note at the bottom of the page, and I know you can't see it too well, but it's in Latin, so that's all right. Um, um, suggests that Pastorius was thinking of leaf prints as the basis of an encrypted alphabet, where A would be re represented by the leaf of a wormwood shrub. A was represented by a wormwood shrub, which is absinthium, and B by a beet, beta, C by a crocus, crocus, and so forth. This would be a hard code to break because you'd have to recognize the leaves and know their Latin names. And it would be, a, it would be superior to all verbal codes because it wouldn't look like writing in the first place. But I digress. The ingenious Pastorius hid another message here. The two pages on which he made his leaf prints happen to be the pages where the technologies of printing and engraving are described. And this suggests that he thought of printing as a simple, natural substitute for copper plate engraving. Brightnell and Franklin saw it the same way. On one of their leaf prints is inscribed, engraven by the greatest and best engraver in the universe. <laughs> the images of leaves on Franklin's paper money are not nature prints, but rather a very unusual kind of relief metal cut. The numismatist Eric Newman believes they were made of type metal cast on from molds made by pressing leaves into plaster of Paris. Franklin first used the technique to illustrate an article about the medicinal rattlesnake herb in the 1737 Poor Richard Almanac, two years before he used them on money. The cuts he made for use on money usually included a background of woven fabric. This is a terrible slide, but at least it's not as bad as it seems because what you're seeing there is the, is the, um, the pattern of the woven fabric. Um, this makes the image even harder to imitate. Even Newman could only guess how he did that, but clearly actual cloth was somehow involved. However they were made, these cuts were so successful as, a counterfeit, as counterfeit deterrence that the same blocks were used over and over again on money printed by Franklin and his, and his successors through the continental currency of 1776. And this is a, um, a counterfeit detector sheet, which was printed on blue paper, bluish, bluish green paper, which um, is undivided because, of course, it wasn't meant to be spent in the bills aren't signed, it's just meant to show people what the bills are supposed to look like. It's a counterfeit detector. So, um, my conclusion. It's something of a commonplace to say that job printing was the most lucrative source of income for early modern printers, and I'm sometimes asked if that was true for Franklin. It's a hard question to answer because his business records are so incomplete and because they record only credit sales, whereas most job printing, as we know, is done on a strictly cash basis. Franklin's surviving account books show that less than a tenth of the thousands of sales recorded were for job printing. Franklin's partner and successor, David Hall, kept much better books after he took over the business in 1748 because he had to account for Franklin to, uh, to Franklin for every penny he made. Hall ran the business pretty much the way Franklin did, and his records show that over half his income was from the Pennsylvania Gazette and another quarter from Poor Richard, and most of the rest from other books of his own printing. Job printing, again, is less than 10%. In other words, job printing was a staple, but just one of several, by no means the most important, and certainly not a mainstay of his business. But what about other early American printers? Obviously, Franklin was not a typical printer. He dominated every aspect of the printing and bookselling business in the middle colonies. Other printers who didn't, for example, happen to run the largest circulation newspaper in America or didn't run a newspaper at all might have relied much more on job printing than Franklin did. And in the 19th century, when the printing trade was more crowded in large cities and more dispersed geographically, job printing was probably very much a mainstay to some urban printers and perhaps to all printers in small towns. 
and job printing was also, I suspect, the way many young printers broke into the trade. It was in the early 19th century that Franklin's autobiography became a worldwide bestseller, a sort of working man's Bible. And surely every printer's apprentice read it and knew by heart the passages I've quoted tonight. How many young printers read the story about the countryman inquiring in the street for a printer and envisioned a similar start for themselves? And more to the point, how many did actually make their first buck with a piece of job printing? Very few printers were like Franklin, but in a sense, all printers, when they were just starting out in business, were like Franklin when he was just starting out. So how important was job printing to Franklin at the outset of his career? Well, certainly the autobiography repeatedly suggests that it was very important indeed, even though his account books don't bear that out. Was this just another case of the patriarch romanticizing his humble origins? I don't think so. I've found a piece of anecdotal evidence that corroborates the autobiography in this respect and perhaps quantifies his early job printing better than his own account, his own business records do. In May 1731, Franklin printed a handbill advertising berths on a ship loading for Barbados, which included the phrase, no sea hands nor black gowns will be admitted on any terms. Well, sea hands were prostitutes, and black gowns referred to clergymen. It was a joke, but nobody thought it was funny. <laughs> no copy of the handbill survives, and we know about it, but we know about it because Franklin was so criticized for mocking the clergy that he wrote a humorous apology for printers about it in, in the Gazette. Among the many excuses and justifications he offered was this. I have printed above a thousand advertisements which have not made the least mention of sea hens or black gowns, and this being the first offense, I have the more reason to expect forgiveness. Well, a thousand ads. By then he'd been in business just three years, and that means he had been printing broadside ads at an average rate of one a day. Not a single one survives, and only four of those thousand are noted in his account. But think of the impact of an ad a day, each one printed in at least a hundred copies on a small city like Philadelphia. The streets must have been festooned with them, each one proclaiming the new printer in town, each one representing another happy customer. When Franklin wrote his apology for printers, he was well on the road to success. A year or two earlier, though, his, pro his prospects had been decidedly grim. In the first year and a half of his business, from the spring of 1728 to the fall of 1729, when he had no newspaper, no poor Richard, no government printing contracts, and when he was still 200 pounds in debt for his printing equipment. In those first 18 months, the only extant products of his press are part of that, of that part of the folio history of the Quakers, which I mentioned earlier, for which he didn't get paid until much later, the essay on paper currency, which he largely gave away, and an anti-slavery tract that was so controversial that he didn't put his name in the imprint, though he was happy to take the author's money. Apart from that one pamphlet, his ad a day, and whatever other job printing he could drum up, must have been his only source of income for 18 long months. So I've come to the conclusion that job printing was not terribly important to Franklin during most of his career, but that it was absolutely the mainstay of his business at the outset. This helped me understand why he mentioned job printing so prominently in the autobiography, which is all about how he got his start, and why he advertised his services as a job printer so energetically at first. His job printing may also be one of the ways he got such a, re such a reputation for industriousness. In the autobiography, he says several times that Andrew Bradford was lazy, but Bradford did all the things Franklin was later to do, newspapers, almanacs, government printing, book selling, etc. What did Franklin do at the outset that made him appear more industrious, apart from ostentatiously uh, hauling his own paper through the streets in a wheelbarrow? What did he do that Bradford did not? Job printing. It was his specialty, his niche in the market, the way he built up his business from nothing. 
It was his first step on, the way, on his way to wealth. And in that first year or two, my guess is that if you went to Bradford's and asked to have an ad or a blank form printed, he said he was too busy. Franklin cheerfully did all sorts of printing at reasonable rates, and he was never too busy to do a small job. the Book Arts Press until uh, 1999 when we changed our general way of doing business uh, to the Aegis of our book school. Our job printing is posters for lectures by and large and there are nearly 500 of them and they are all, all that survive uh, and our survival rate is a great deal higher than that of Franklin's uh, our posted on all of the walls of the first floor of Alderman Library, waiting for you to take a look at, in many cases with photographs of the lecturers. And since the pictures go back now nearly 40 years, it is an amazing trip down memory lane for uh, those who have been around for a bit. There is a catalog of the exhibition, which I hope you pick up while you are there. There is uh, champagne and sparkling water at every corner. I'll see you next door. <laughs>